Well, good morning to you. And um, this morning we're going to be in the Psalms again after a week away from them. So you can look in page 6 of your bulletin there and see Psalm 115. And uh, this is, again, I'll remind you, in the sequence of six psalms that are known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. They're praise songs that uh, came to be, it's thought, traditionally used at the Passover meal for the Israelites to remember and look back on God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And this one, the third one of the six, probably would have been the first to be sung after the Passover meal, many think. And so it's, it's uh, quite possible that if you think of Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper, when we read in the Gospels that they, they sang a hymn and then they went out to the garden, this maybe could have been the hymn or one of the hymns that they sang on that occasion. And this hymn is about giving, giving credit to God, which <clears throat> would have certainly been appropriate for Jesus to have done on the night of his betrayal, uh, because The idolatry of the human heart has sought to steal credit from God. The nations, the people of the world, worship the work of human hands, the psalmist tells us. And this psalm does actually criticize that in a striking way. It won't be surprising to you to see that. But I want to challenge you as we read this psalm to to read it with a certain lens on your eyes. Don't read this psalm with eyes of judgment for those who worship idols as if you don't, but rather read it with eyes of compassion for people who face the same temptations that you face. That's what this psalm does for us. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we do ask, as we always do, that you would be at work by your Spirit in us. Lord, you are faithful to yourself, and therefore you're faithful to your Word. And so we pray that you would make it to be alive in our souls, or rather enliven our souls to it, because it is alive. 
And Father, change us. Make us new. Help us to turn away from our own idols and to trust you more and more as you call us to do. Lord, help us to do that to your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I was tempted in thinking about this particular psalm to put a Latin title to this sermon. And I I didn't. I refused the temptation because I thought it might give you a false impression. It might make you think that I know Latin, and I don't. uh, Except for, you know, what little bits and pieces of it I've picked up in, in learning Spanish over the years. My kids know Latin because they're smarter than I am, right? They're nodding their heads, yes, right? They know Latin, I don't, so I don't want to give you the impression that I do. But there would be a very appropriate Latin title for this sermon, Non Nobis Domine, not to us, O Lord. It's, it's the Latin translation, of course. In the Latin Vulgate, which was hundreds of years ago, a thousand years ago, the, the translation of the Bible into Latin, which 500 years ago, I think, came to be the accepted uh, official translation of the church of that day, which was the Roman Catholic Church. The Latin was the common language of the day. And so the, tithe, the, the first verse of this psalm, non nobis domine, non nobis, sed nomini tua da gloriam. Again, I don't know Latin. Don't be impressed. I'm just reading like you can read. But that's the Latin translation of the first verse of this psalm. And I, I say it to you because it has been claimed That verse in Latin has been claimed by Western civilization in which you and I live. It's been claimed by Western civilization over the course of of centuries in its moments of accomplishment, its moments of success, its moments of achievement in order to ward off the temptation of pride. Non nobis. Domine, not to us, O Lord. From William Shakespeare to William Wilberforce to many modern schools in our own day, including the school that my own kids attend, these words have been claimed, even in their Latin form, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because there's temptation to steal. You know, if if you steal credit, it's been said, if you steal credit from one person, it's called plagiarism. But if you steal credit from many people, it's called research. <laughs> no, no, it's sarcasm. I know that some of you, you do research as part of your vocation in all respect to you. I'm not accusing you of anything. It's just sarcasm. But I would add to that another category. If you steal credit from God, it's called idolatry. And it is the greatest crime that can be committed in this world. In fact, it was the first crime that was committed in this world. You know, it was only 61 verses into the Bible, if you go back to the very beginning of your scriptures, into the book of Genesis, and and count the verses. 61 verses in, when this crime began to fester, there you'll find that the serpent, the evil one, the liar, said to the woman, he said, God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. It was a lie that Eve wanted to believe. She wanted to believe it because she wanted to control what she worshipped. In fact, she wanted to, I would say, be worshipped. And so she 
believed the, the lie. And from that moment in history, God's redemptive plan began to unfold. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. It's a treacherous thing to steal credit from God, mainly because he's the only one who truly has glory and it belongs to him alone. He's the source of it all. But also because when we do it, when we steal glory, credit from God, it distracts the eyes of many who truly need to see it. The psalmist shows that first by pointing us to a very perplexing question. It's obvious in your text because there are many doubts that God must endure from us. We all have our doubts. Verse 2, why should the nations say, where is their God? It's perplexing and troubling. It's unfortunate, you might even say, that the nations, the peoples of the world, should even ask that question, where is their God? Asking it of the Israelites. They ask it, of course, in ancient days and in our day too. They ask it, of course, in their own blindness. They don't, or they can't, or they won't acknowledge credit to God as the source of all weight and significance and substance and import in this universe. They don't, or they won't, or they can't acknowledge God for those things. That's the fallen nature of the human heart. We were made to worship. It's how God created us to do, and so we're going to worship regardless. One way or another, we're we're going to worship. But in our fallen condition, we worship what we can see. We worship what we can control. That's the desire of our fallen hearts, which means that we worship the work of human hands, in the words of the psalmist. Now, this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul found in Athens, Greece. You heard from Acts chapter 17 moments ago as as it was read. Paul found this as he waited for his friends, Timothy and Silas, I think were his friends who were coming to meet him there. And as he waited, he observed that the city was full of idols, the writer of Acts tells us. It was full of idols. This was a a people, the Athenian people, a people that was, was very cultured. They were educated people. They were thinkers, these people. The Athenians, the, the, the Greeks, and they were striving to make sense of their own existence. They wanted to understand their own story, as it were, which we all ought to do as well. We ought to strive to understand our own story. That's what they were, were doing. And in their context, they simply did what people had done for ages. They formed with their own hands images of silver and gold or stone or wood or whatever it was that they had at their disposal, images that could not speak, that could not see, that could not hear, that could not smell, that could not feel, that could not walk. And they imagined, it took some imagination, but they imagined that somehow there was glory, substance, weight, significance in those Images. And the psalmist describes such images as the psalmist reflects on the nations, the people that were 
around the Israelites in the psalmist's day. And, and he describes these idols in verses 4 through 7 in a very comical, it's, it's really even kind of a mocking sort of way that he describes them as being lifeless and completely controllable by those who have made them. And the human heart remains the same today. Even though the idols have changed, the human heart remains the same. So what are your idols today? I mean, what are the idols of our culture, of the world in which we live? If you think about it, what, what are the idols? What, what are the idols of your own heart? What are the things to which you defer What are the things around which you're willing to change your schedule? What are the things around which you're you're willing to even rearrange your calendar to fit your life to? What are the things that reshape your own behavior? Where is your God? Those are the places where you'll find it. Western civilization has identified over the last 100, 200, 300 years, two of its favorite idols. Its idols, these are science and rationality. Science and rationality, you know, are two of the the very coveted and well-respected idols of our age and have been for some time. In other words, if it can't be measured, then it's not true. And if it can't be understood, then it's not reliable. You hear the, the... visual and the controllable elements to those idols, right? Science and rationality. Very profound, significant, and powerful idols of our day. Is it possible to overcome such idols? It is. It is. If Christians will see what God has made clear. So, some years ago, Tim Keller, the pastor in New York, wrote about a young Chinese woman who came to begin attending their church in New York City. She was a graduate student in political science. She'd come from China to pursue master's degree, doctorate in political science. And she explained that she had come to the U.S. in order to study because it was, you know, in her view, a Christian culture. And she said that even Chinese social scientists had begun to realize that the Christian idea of transcendence, that is, of one true God who is above and beyond anything and all that we could ever control, transcendence, that the Christian idea of transcendence was and is the only possible explanation and basis for human rights and for equality, which you may know, among the Chinese is a very perplexing issue, isn't it? And it should be among us as well, human rights and equality. She said they had begun to realize there's no other explanation for those those things that must be true because man-made gods could not support these things. Science and rationality cannot possibly explain the truth of human rights, that, that a human being has rights to not be oppressed. Science can't explain that. Rationality can't explain that. Only the transcendence of God. And so if the world can see evidence for God like this, then 
Why might the world say of Christians, where is their God? Because they don't see proof of his existence in our lives. That could be a reason, couldn't it? Perhaps. What they often see is religious people claiming glory for themselves, taking credit for themselves in any and every way. And so the psalmist offers to us then an obvious exhortation. It really should be obvious to it. It's quite simple exhortation in verses 9, 10, and 11. In these verses, you begin to see the poetic structure of the psalm. If you look there, you see that it's an antiphonal song that would have been sung, maybe, maybe recited by the choir and then to the congregation, and they would respond with the next part. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You hear the back and forth of the congregation and the choir participating with each other. You give trust, you give credit rather, to the one that you trust. You do. You do. If the nations trust the work of human hands, then you, O Israel, trust in the Lord, the psalmist exhorts us. Not in the idols of the world, not in the idols of your heart, not in any idols at all, but rather trust in the Lord. Instead, you trust in the one true God, the only one in whom glory actually does reside. The glory of God belongs only to God. And the glory of God is what the nations need most. So give them a reason to cease with their perplexing question by showing them that you trust in the Lord. And the psalmist includes everyone in these categories. You notice these three categories that the psalmist refers to. O Israel, trust in the Lord. Israel would be Israelites in general, the congregation in the gathering. And then, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. The house of Aaron would be a particular subset of the Israelites. Aaron having been the first priest and the house of Aaron would have been the ministers, the spiritual leaders of the people. You too trust in the Lord. You don't get an exemption from this. And then there's almost, as it were, I guess, an invitation to you who fear him, also trust in the Lord. Those who fear him probably were maybe visitors, maybe, maybe non-Israelites who were seekers, maybe those kind of Athenian questioners and, and, and searchers of their own story coming to seek and see if maybe this is where substance and glory actually resides. These are the ones who are called also to trust in the Lord. And it's the same in verses 12 and 13. You see the same three categories who there are to receive the blessing of God's remembrance. Now, you do, if you think about it, cast your trust in many directions, probably subconsciously. You know, think about it. You trust that seat that you're sitting in right now to hold your weight and not fall beneath you. You hadn't thought about it, but you trust it, don't you? You trust the combustion engine in your car to drive you home later today. You trust the rubber tires on your car to hold and grip your car to the, to the pavement and keep you safe. You don't even think about it, but you trust them to do that. You trust the clothing and the cosmetics that you wear to hide what you really look like. <laughs> right? Didn't think about that this morning, maybe. 
You trust the locks on your doors to keep evil out of your home. And you trust the passwords you use to protect your finances. And you trust your friends to hide your shame. Maybe they do a good job of that and maybe they don't. You know, you're busy scattering credit in all directions. But do you trust in the Lord in such a way that your neighbors can actually see that you do? If not, then maybe you don't understand exactly what the Lord is for you. And thus the antiphonal repetition of this exhortation. What is the Lord for you? He's your help and your shield. You know, it's said that if something is said in Scripture one time, it means that you should listen to it. If it's said two times, it's meant that you should emphasize it. And if it's said three times, it's meant that if you don't, if you don't get this, then you're in trouble. Pay attention. Three times it's repeated. He is your help and your shield. What does that mean? Adam Walker is a, a British open water swimmer. That's a, actually a category of adventure athletes. I don't necessarily encourage you to do it, but this is what he does. And there is, of recent years, a challenge called the Ocean's Seven Challenge. It's, if, if you're familiar at all with mountain climbing, you might have heard of the Seven Summits Challenge. Those are the seven highest peaks on the seven continents of the world, and, and that's sort of a holy grail of sorts for mountain climbers to go and climb all seven of those. Well, open water swimmers came up with their own challenge, the Ocean Seven Challenge, and they named seven channels or straits around the world, places like the English Channel or the Strait of Gibraltar. There's one in Hawaii. There, there are seven of these around the world. And they, they range from eight miles long to 27 miles long. And these people will go and swim the length of these things, open water swimming, along with all the dangers that come with that. Adam Walker was in the, the midst of completing the Ocean 7 Challenge. I think he's only the sixth person to do it. And he was swimming the Cook Strait in New Zealand. It's about a 16-mile swim between the North and South Island of New Zealand. He was swimming alongside a guideboat. And about three hours into the swim, he was startled to notice a, a, a gray fin appear right next to him. Quickly he realized, to his relief, that it was a dolphin that was swimming right next to him. I mean, three feet away. And within moments, he realized it was not alone. Of course, dolphins come in groups. And, and there were, he, he noticed, six or eight or nine dolphins swimming all right around him, on either side and in front and behind him especially and down below. Dolphins all around him. He thought, how fascinating. Why are these dolphins swimming around me so close? And then he noticed down below him the unmistakable shadow and silhouette of a large shark. Now, if I were him at that moment, I would have waved the guideboat down and climbed in and said, this is it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go climb mountains instead. <laughs> it's not what he did. Instead, he kept swimming. He realized what seemed to be happening. These dolphins were preventing the shark from coming close to him. And they followed along as that shark did for half an hour until finally the shark gave up and disappeared. And the dolphins stayed with him for another hour before they also disappeared. They were his help and his shield. As is God for you. He's your help. 
Okay, so think about that word back in, in Genesis chapter 2. The same word appears there when God creates the woman for the man. He creates her to be a help, a helper. One who corresponds to, who complements, who can fill in the weak spots and, and do for him what he can't do. God is strong where you are weak. And he's a shield. This is interesting. The, the Greek translation in the Septuagint, where the, the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, a couple of hundred years before the ministry of Jesus, the, the Greek word that was used for this translation here is huperopistis. Huperopistis. What it means, pistis is faith. Hupero means on behalf of. It means faithful on behalf of. That's interesting. God is your shield, meaning he is faithful on behalf of you. When you're not faithful, he's faithful. He does for you what you can't possibly do for yourself. God is the one who can see the danger that you cannot see. And God is the one who does for you what you cannot possibly do for yourself. There is no idol on this earth or in your imagination that could ever do those things. Do you trust him in the gospel? The reality is, in the gospel, you are more sinful than you know, as has been said. And yet, at the same time, you're more loved than you can imagine because God is your help and your shield in the gospel. He has helped you with his own strength and he has shielded you with his own faithfulness. The Lord has remembered us. And he will bless us, the psalmist says, whether you're small or great, whether you matter or you don't matter, whether you're big or little, whether you're a nobody or a somebody, the Lord has remembered us and he will bless us with his help and his shield. Now, if the nations, if the peoples, the neighbors around you can see that you trust him and yet they persist with their perplexing question, then it it may be that they simply won't accept a generous benediction. Because that's where the psalmist goes to conclude, doesn't he? Verse 14 and 15, May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's a classic benediction. A benediction is, again, I've already put you in the Latin mood, Earlier, a benediction, to use its Latin roots, bene means good and diction means word. A benediction is literally a good word. And you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate good words. Everyone is glad to receive a good, encouraging, and helpful word from time to time. You see people sometimes who maybe are not Christians who will post you know, on social media to their friend who's having surgery, hey, good thoughts with you or, or whatever. You know, people, people want a good word. Christian or not, but only a Christian benediction is grounded in the transcendent existence of the one true God who made heaven and earth, as the psalmist defines here. God's word is a good word for this life. Look at verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. In other words, the Lord has given the earth to the children of man for their good. He's, he's given the earth to us for blessings today, for a benediction, a good word for us 
today to benefit from, to enjoy the, the pleasures and the goodness of all of creation, this earth that he has made for us. So it's a, it's a good word for this life, but it's also a good word for after this life. Look at verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Forevermore. <clears throat> it means that after we've died, we won't be dead. We'll give glory to his name forever. We'll acknowledge the weight, the significance, the, the substance, the import of God, and forever rest in that glory, which, by the way, is the very substance of this generous benediction. I mean, it is his glory with which he blesses us in this benediction. That's the theme of the entire psalm. It was established in verse one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. All glory is God's. All throughout Scripture it is. And Scripture makes that to be very clear. I mean, here are a, a few little verses to remind you of that. Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, all who are called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Now glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. Or Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now let me ask you what I think is an obvious question. It should be obvious. Does it seem to you selfish for God to be so intent on being acknowledged like this? Whom I created for my glory. Whatever you do, do it for my glory. Does it seem to you to be selfish that God should be like this? I mean, for many people it would seem that way. And if you have doubts about the legitimacy of Christianity, if you're maybe not a Christian, you... This is one of those points in Scripture where you see this and you think, no way. I am, I am not going to worship a dictator, a, a selfish, self-absorbed, glory-seeking dictator. I'm not interested. And I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I mean, does it, does it seem that way? Because if an ordinary person was focused on themselves in this way, we'd write them off. In fact, we have a word for it. We'd call them a narcissist. And we'd send them in for help because they need it. Right? So why not God? Because of this truth. For the glory of God to be known is the best blessing that mankind can ever receive. There is no greater gift that can ever be given to you than for you to know and recognize the glory of God. There is nothing that is a greater gift than that. Verse 1, again, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, it's the love of God, the covenant love and faithfulness of him to his people that is the greatest blessing that they could ever have. And it's his glory that shows that to them. I mean, think of it this way. 
Is it selfish for a mom and dad to love each other well to the extent that sometimes they put their kids second? Is that selfish? Is it selfish for mom and dad to love each other well to the extent that their kids sometimes don't get what they want? Is that selfish of mom and dad to do that? No, it is not. It's the very strength of the family. It's the very thing that holds the family together. It's the very basis upon which children are blessed in the context of their family is the love of their father and mother for each other. A husband and wife's love for each other is the very best gift they could possibly give to their children because in that love is strength. In that love is stability. In that love is security and significance and substance. In that love is glory. So then how much more is the glory of God the greatest blessing that any person could ever know? In its absence, there is no strength. There is no stability. There is no security or significance at all. The glory of God is the only hope that the human race has ever known. If you're a Christian, now this benediction offers to you a calling And that is that whatever of this earth that God has given to you for your good, it is that with which he has called you to extol his glory to a broken world that needs to see it. Whatever he's given to you of this earth, again, the psalmist said he's given to the children of men the earth for their good. Whatever it is of this earth that God has given to you for your good, it is that thing with which he calls you to demonstrate the glory of God to the world around you that's broken and needs to see it. That's a calling for you. If you're not a Christian, though, if you're not a believer, then this benediction is also something for you. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to set aside the idols that you have shaped for your own control and instead trust in the Lord who is the only source of glory in the universe. The actor, comedian Jim Carrey said, or maybe he tweeted these words. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see that that is not the answer. The work of human hands never is. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Amen. Father, we give you thanks and praise and glory for your word. And we pray that you would enable us to believe it. Help us, Father, to trust you, in fact, instead of the idols of our own making. And cause us, Father, to acknowledge your glory to live in the light of your glory and to find our own story in the midst of it. And for these things, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.